Welcome to the Millerville Community Church podcast of our Sunday morning sermon series, where the Word of God is always the focus of our hearts and prayers. This live recording is made possible by the generous donation and support of our subscribers. If you would like to join the growing community of seekers and believers who support MCC podcasts, just go to our website, www.millervillechurch.org, and you can make your online donation anytime. And now, here is a message from Sunday morning at MCC. So my name is Beth, and welcome to those who are um, the first time here. And uh, we're just very pleased to be together, and let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for how you instruct us that you have uh, not left us without um, your spirit and without your word that we might Uh, know you, that we might draw closer, that we're not dependent on just guessing, but you have given us um, everything that we need for living a life of godliness and a life that is drawn close to you. So I pray that you would use your word in our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen. So obviously we're doing what's called the triumphal entry of Jesus, but um, I just wanted to point something out. There's, Jesus comes as prophet, priest, and king. And we see in the what we call the synoptic gospels, which are the three gospels that um, kind of track along on the same lines. John is, has a different emphasis. But the three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have um, an aspect of the, of the uh, coming of Jesus to Jerusalem. And if you've been in the Mark study that we did in these last couple of months, we were looking at uh, this time period when Jesus came and he was staying in Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem. It's, you know, walking distance. And then he would walk into Jerusalem every day and then go back to stay in Bethany. And it would, it's assumed that he would stay at um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home, the two sisters and the brother at their home. And then he would come in every day with his disciples. So it would seem that he came in, um, you know, at this point three times. And he comes uh, in uh, the Gospel of Mark, he comes in as the priest. So what happens is, in the Gospel of Mark, he comes in and he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he looks around, he doesn't do anything. Usually he teaches in the temple, but he comes in, he looks around, and it says, and then he left. And as he walked out, that's when he encountered the fig tree that had no fruit. And he cursed the fig tree for not having any fruit. But the picture is the priesthood. And the picture is that those priests were not producing any fruit, that they were not faithful to God, that they had not done what God had appointed them to do. And so we see Jesus coming in that he is the real high priest. And so there he is in his priestly role. And then in the Gospel of Luke, he comes in and it tells us that one of the things that he does is he enters into Jerusalem. He looks from the uh, Mount of Olives down upon Jerusalem and he spreads his arms and he says about Jerusalem, he makes a prophecy and he says to them that they are going to have their temple destroyed and that there will not be one stone left on top of another because they failed to recognize the time of their visitation 
which is the time when Jesus came as Messiah, they fail to recognize him, and consequently, they're going to suffer <coughs> the devastation from not recognizing. And so we see Jesus coming then as the prophet. And now we're looking at the other time, which is recorded in the book of Matthew, which is what we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 21. So in Matthew chapter 21, and this is what um, Reg read this morning in our uh, worship time this morning, and I'm just going to uh, look at it again. So I'm just going to read the first seven verses. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. So there's a donkey and her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Like they're going to just let you take those, the donkey and its colt. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them. I love that line there. They just did what Jesus told them to. Other times they said, what? No, we're not doing that. Or what are you crazy? That seems ridiculous. But this time they're learning. And they do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. And they brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And so um, what we see here is this donkey and the colt, and the reason that it's drawing our attention to that is the colt has never been ridden. This is one that is um, newly going to be ridden by Jesus. Of course, I don't know if you are a horse person, but you just don't jump on a horse that's never been ridden before and start riding it. It takes a lot of breaking in. And I think, you know, it just is showing again, as it's shown many times, his mastery over all the created world. And so um, he's, going, he's mounted on that colt, and they lay um, these garments on it. Now, we think of a, a donkey as being not a very noble creature, but that's not how they thought of a donkey back then. And I just want to take us to a few references to understand what a donkey is. So um, in the Old Testament, so much of the New Testament is understood by understanding the Old Testament. And so what we learn in the Old Testament, there's a lot of references, but in particular, the donkey was the, the, the beast of burden or the beast that the king would ride on. And um, so think of back to King Saul. And we had this picture before he was king when he was just, uh, you know, in his 20s probably. And uh, he, his father kept donkeys and the donkeys got out and he's out looking for the donkeys. And when he's out looking for the donkeys, that's when Samuel, um, he comes to Samuel to find out, you know, where have these donkeys gone? And Samuel knows from the Lord that Saul is to be anointed as king. And so we see this picture of the donkeys and the kingship brought together. And then later, um, when David becomes the king, he has his special donkey. And everybody knows David's donkey. This is David's and that the one that he rode. And when Absalom, his son, tried to take over the kingdom, he grabbed David's donkey and rode on David's donkey to try and convince the people that he really is the king. 
because he's on David's donkey. And later, we see Solomon, um, when the true king is, is being coronated, who is Solomon, uh, God chose Solomon, not Absalom, and Solomon, David's son, um, is now being made king. And so at his coronation, he rode David's donkey. And so we see this donkey is being uh, quite connected with the kingship of David. And remember, the promise that God made to David was that his lineage would always sit on the throne of Israel. And ever since um, the destruction of uh, the temple, they didn't have a king sitting on the throne up till the days of Jesus. So that's like, you know, a pretty huge period of time from basically 600 B.C. to, you know, Jesus' day. They had um, no king sitting on the throne because they were occupied all, always by these foreign countries. And so when Jesus came in, and, they're, um, and he's riding on a donkey that is not lost on the people when he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, that he comes as a king. And the other thing that the donkey signifies is that he's coming in peace. He's not on a war horse. He's coming on a donkey. And the donkey was the symbol of the conquered, king, like the conquering king, that already it's at peace. And he now is riding on a donkey, not on a war horse anymore. So he comes victoriously. And so he's coming victoriously into Jerusalem. And the people are recognizing it. So they're laying their garments um, over top of the, the donkey and um, as well as other places. But I want us to, you know, we looked at Zechariah 9.9 also earlier um, today when Reg was reading. And I want us to look at that, but it says in verse 4, I just want to read verse 4, now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, and then it goes on to tell us this prophecy from Zechariah. And I just want to remind us that Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, teaches us that all, um, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of all prophecy, so prophecy is almost always about Jesus in the scriptures. So it's one of the things we always want to be looking for, especially as we read through the prophets, looking for the pictures that it gives us, the foreshadowing of Jesus yet to come. And so let's just look at Ze Zechariah 9.9. And if you just flip back into the Old Testament, into all those prophets, Zechariah is towards the end right before Malachi. And I just want to read 9.9 9 because there's something that's left out. So in Matthew it says, this is the prophecy that's quoted, say to the daughter of Zion, be, that would be a, that's a reference to Jerusalem, behold your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And yet when you look back at the reference, there's some that's notably absent. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you may say to yourself, I didn't notice any difference. <laughs> well, there is, because part of it is left out, and that part is talking about the second coming of Jesus. And so as we look at what we call the triumphal entry, which is... Um, recorded here in Matthew 21, we want to have in our minds that Jesus is returning, and he is coming as the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, 
that he is coming as the, the majestic one over all the earth. And when he returns, we're not going to have little pockets of people groups that are going to rebel against him. He will be in charge of all the earth. And so this is really, today's lesson is a foreshadowing of what is yet to come. And it's a, a picture of the bigger picture of Jesus, who is our king. And so um, he comes, it says, gentle and mounted on a donkey. And that word gentle, we often think of it, well, he's on a donkey, and it's you know kind of a cute little scene. Well, no, gentle means um, in the scriptures, it teaches us that it's humble and obedient to the Lord. That's what gentle is, is being obedient to the Lord. And of course, the question for us is, are we obedient? Could it be said of us that we are a gentle people, that I am a gentle person? And uh, we see that when it, we talk about Jesus' humility, it's his obedience to the Father that is so significant. So rich and poor alike actually rode on the donkeys. And um, uh, so it wasn't just for the rich. Uh, I love that about the Lord. It doesn't matter for rich or poor. It doesn't matter if we you know, have the super intellect or you know, we're kind of not totally there. None of that matters. What matters is the heart and the heart that beats for the Lord. And so that's what he's always interested in. And I think the donkey kind of helps portray that. So um, I just want to point to another prophecy that was given much earlier than Zechariah's prophecy. It's in Genesis 49, Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11. And if you know sort of the order of things, you know that this is the prophecy that Jacob gave on his deathbed. So deathbed statements are always very important. And um, he's on his deathbed, and he has 12 sons. Uh, Jacob is renamed Israel, so this is like the father of the nation of Israel. And each of his sons becomes the head of one of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the prophecy that he gives to his fourth son, who is Judah. And Jesus is from what tribe? Judah. He is a Jew, and he was born in the tribe of Judah. And look at the prophecy that's given to his forefather, Judah, the son of uh, Jacob. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Now, he's not the oldest son. He's the fourth oldest son. So that's, you know, really quite different. So Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who, who dares rouse him up? The scepter, that means like the ruling um, authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh means to whom it belongs, which means Jesus. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then here it ties it in again with that donkey. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed, and um, when you see these pictures of vine, we're thinking Israel. And when you see wine, um, it's not just like communion wine. We're also to see the picture of the judgment of God when he treads out the wine press. So it says he washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. So it tells you we're talking judgment here. We're not talking about the communion. We're talking about judgment. 
His eyes are dull from wine, which means they're darker than wine, and his teeth white from milk, like whiter than milk, perfect justice because of his purity. And so that is a prophecy, really, about Jesus, the coming king. And we'll see its, its complete fulfillment when he returns. But this is a partial fulfillment right here in what we're seeing. And we're seeing Jesus now has come in as the priest. He came in as the prophet. And now he comes in as his, in his role as the king. So um, why are we interested in this? Because actually we're interested in the bigger picture of who Jesus is. If we understand Jesus through you know, the media or through you know, what we learned when we were little kids or what we've heard from other people, we will not have a full picture of the majesty, of the greatness, of the holiness of the glory of Jesus that we get by knowing all these things about him that are revealed in the scriptures. And so um, let's just keep moving on to verses 8 to 11. And uh, I'm just going to read those verses. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees, and that's the palm branches, and spreading them in the road. That's why we do. That's why we call this Palm Sunday, and we do the palm thing is because we're celebrating this, which was exactly a week before um, all the other events that are going to be we're going to be doing next week when we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the multitudes going before him, and those who followed after, were crying out. Hosanna to the son of David, which I think the kids did a great job of today. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Like everybody is, is noticing this. Who is this man? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So they're giving him a very human title here. But um, listen to what they had said. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now when they spread the garments, they actually, that's an, an ancient tradition of theirs. When Jehu was made king, that's after um, you know, Israel had split. We had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom and all the time of Ahab and you know, the awfulness of Ahab's reign in the northern kingdom. And God sent Jehu to deal with Ahab then a prophet came, and they're just in this tent. And uh, in this tent, Jehu's there with his buddies, uh, you know, the captain of the army and the other guys, and um, he's hanging out with these few men. And this guy was sent by Elisha, the, the great prophet Elisha, not Elijah, but, you know, the next guy down. And Elisha sends this prophet, and he says, okay, I want you to go and give this message to Jehu, and as soon as you give it to him, turn around and run for your life. So the prophet comes in, and he goes into this tent, and he says, I'd like to talk to you, Jehu. So they kind of go off to a private corner, and the prophet says to him, you have been appointed by God to be the king of Israel, meaning the northern kingdom. And Jehu goes, what, me? Because, you know, he's just dealt with Ahab and Jezebel and that whole story, and he says, like, me? And the prophet just turns around and beats it out of there. And so Jehu kind of comes to his buddies, and he's kind of a little stunned. And, and uh, this is so interesting because he's, they, go, they say to him, you know, they're just, I don't know, playing cards or something. And they say to him, 
so what did that guy have to say to you? Because they don't know he's a prophet. What did that guy have to say to you? And Jehu says, he just anointed me king of Israel. And I, if I had been there, I would have said, yeah, right, sure. But to their credit, and I think it, it's just a God thing, they immediately stood up, they took off their garments, their cloak, and they spread it down before Jehu for him to walk on. Like this sign of, yes, you know, you are the king. And they spread their garments. And it always was something in Israel for somebody who's of that kind of stature to spread their garments for him to walk on so he's not walking on the ground. And so when the people do this to Jesus, they're recognizing him as their king. But because of what they say, they say this, Hosanna. Hosanna is not hallelujah. Hosanna is Hoshana, which means he saves. And so when they call out he saves, they're recognizing him that he has come to save them. He is the son of David. The very next thing they say, the true king, not Herod, but this man, Jesus, is the true king of Israel because he is the son of David. He's not an Idumean. He's not some foreigner. He's not from Rome. He is the son of David, and he has come to be our earthly kingdom. It's earth, they're thinking. Hosanna, he has come to save us from the power of Rome, and he's going to overthrow Rome. And as they hold up the mat, the palm branches, it's a reference that they learned. Um, it's throughout the Old Testament, but hugely a reference to the Maccabean Revolt. Now, the Maccabean Revolt happened in 165 BC, so, you know, almost 200 years before this event. And at the Maccabean Revolt, which is, you know, it's in that time period between Malachi and the New Testament, so 400 years there of silence of the scripture. But in that period of time, the Greeks were in charge of Israel, like they had come after Alexander the Great and they had conquered Israel and, and Israel was still um, part of the Greek Empire. And uh, Antiochus IV came in and set himself up as like super king. And he went into the temple and he put up a statue of Zeus in the temple of God. And he desecrated the temple and offered a pig on the sacrificial altar. Like he complete, an unclean animal. And he completely desecrated the temple. And um, then he came to, um, at the time, the high priest, Mattathias, and he said to Mattathias, you will also make sacrifice to Zeus. And Mattathias, to his credit, refused. He didn't just go, no, I'm not gonna do that. He rose up in furious anger and he pulled out his knife, which is probably the sacrificial knife that he used to, you know, to sacrifice animals. He pulled out his knife and he ran this officer who had come to tell him this, had ran him through and killed him. Well, I mean, he's going to be toast, right? And so, um, but what it did was he had five sons. And his five sons rose up with him and they started a revolt. That was too much. And they started a revolt. And his third son uh, was renamed the Hammerer, which in the Hebrew is Maccabeus. And so that's where we get the title, the Maccabean Revolt, from. 
And so they remembered the Re Maccabean revolt of how they rose up. It took three years, but they did get Jerusalem back. It was a huge, huge thing for them and was celebrated because of the oil in the lamp that lasted for the eight days and um, didn't go out. And because of that, that miracle, it became known as the Festival of Lights, which is what we know today as Hanukkah. And so that's, that is the story of Hanukkah. And later in the, in the New Testament, we see it in John, it's called the Feast of Dedication. So that Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, and um, according to the historical references I read, it's December 25th. So, I mean, there's reasons why these things we celebrate on these dates. So, um, so that is really what they're doing. They're saying, finally, we've got another Judas Maccabeus is what we have, or Jonas Maccabeus. We have somebody else who's coming and who is going to revolt against Rome now, not Greece anymore, against Rome, and is going to give us back our nation. And so they've got the palm branches and they've spread the garments and Jesus is coming in and they're calling him son of David. Who is this man? This is the prophet Jesus and also the king, the king who really um, sits in the throne of David because he was of the direct line of, of David. And so they're all um, super excited. But you know what the real victory was? The real victory is that he's coming in as the Lamb of God. Now, we associate lambs with these sweet, gentle little animals. That's how we think of a lamb. They don't think of lambs that way at all in Israel. A lamb to them is the sacrifice. And so when Jesus is called the Lamb of God, we're talking about his sacrifice. And we're not talking sweet and gentle. We're talking this wonderful victory of him conquering sin. No one can conquer sin but Jesus alone. Only his sacrifice is acceptable. None of the rest of us could ever offer an acceptable sacrifice to God because we're not perfect. But Jesus is perfect in every way. He's completely God's man, and he is God. So none of us, no man, could sacrifice. But Jesus, God himself, came in order to sacrifice himself in order to redeem us. Could have wiped us out, but he didn't. He chose because he loves us, and he came to redeem us. And so they're celebrating what they think is he's going to overthrow Rome, but the real victory is he's conquering sin. He's conquering death. Death no longer has to be the outcome for us. He's giving us new life and the chance of the resurrection. And that opportunity comes through belief in who he is. And so um, it's a foreshadowing. And I just want us to uh, turn over. It's actually um, Lamb Selection Day. This particular day that Jesus rides in this time, it says to us that it was the 10th day of the first month, which is the day that they all select the lamb for the sacrifice of the Passover that's going to happen four days later. So they select their lamb, and they have their lamb with them. So, like, it's just crazy place at the temple as everybody's getting their lamb getting ready for the Passover but in Revelation 5 verses 5 to 6 I just want to read that so now we're in the throne room of God this is at the end of the end and Jesus is going to be returning and we're getting a window a picture into what it's like in the heavenly places 
and there's all this worship going on of all the angelic be um, beings and the, the cherubs and the seraphim and, and everybody is celebrating. And um, those who have been rescued and belong to the Lord but have physically died and are with him now, everybody is um, praising God. And it says, and one of the elders said to me, so this is John who's writing, John the Apostle John, in his latter years, and he's having this vision of what's going on, and uh, he's weeping because um, the question was asked, you know, who, who can open up the scroll? And the scroll is the judgment of God. Like, who's worthy to open up the scroll? And he's weeping. And uh, one of the elders said to him, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, and that's a fulfillment of prophecy. He's referred to as the lion of Judah. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, so the offspring of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, remember this is his vision, so it may seem like weird language to us, but... I'll carry on. And the elders um, between the throne, so that's the throne of God, and the elders that are worshiping and the four living creatures that are before the throne between them stood a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So that's the all-seeing nature of God who sees all things, all deeds. There is nothing hidden from him. And so here is the lamb who is the lion. And so just in that one reference, we see the lion of Judah, who is the great judge, and the lamb, who is the great sacrifice. Who better to know whose heart belongs to him than the one who died for us? So he knows the heart of each of us. He knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. And yes, it is a choice that we make, but yes, it is also something that we are chosen to. And so um, we have this picture of the lion and the lamb brought together. And that is really the picture that we should have when we read the triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. So um, Psalm 118, I just want to read that quickly because it's so good. I looked over these scriptures and I said, oh my goodness, I have a lot of scriptures in here, but... They're all so amazing. So we just got to read the whole Bible. That's just how it is. <laughs> okay, Psalm 118. And I'm reading from verses 22 to 29. And if you've got a Bible app or your Bible, you can read along with me. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So a chief cornerstone is the one that you measure all the building to. And if it's not square, eventually you have the Tower of Pisa. You know, it kind of falls over. So um, it's important that the chief cornerstone be absolutely true. And he is the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So this day, this day, it's not talking about today. It's talking about in, unless the Lord returns today. It's talking about this day that he returns. Um, o Lord, do save, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that was quoted in Zechariah and quoted in Matthew. 
We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords. Like here we have this triumph, and yet now we're talking sacrifice. Um, Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar, the four corners of the altar. Thou art my God, and I give thanks to thee. Thou art my God, I extol thee. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And you can read loving kindness. It's the same word as mercy. His mercy is everlasting. You think that you have gone too far? You think that maybe you have done something that, you know, these other people, they may have mercy, but what I've done, it's too black. There is nothing that is beyond the great mercy of God. And if you have not received his mercy, I just urge you that his love is an everlasting love. And he loves each one of us that are sitting here. And he died for each one of us. So he has extended his mercy to us. And it's up to us to say, yes, Lord, I receive it. And so uh, we see that in Psalm 118. Going back to Matthew 21 at verse 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple. So he's come in and they've all been, you know, crying out. And now he goes into the temple. And look at um, what happens here. Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And he's looking right at those chief priests and the money changers and all those others who are officials. And he says, you have made it a robber's den. And I would think if I were there that I'd be pretty terrified. And so um, I just want us to look at what is Jesus talking about? Why does he do that? So what's happening? Remember I said this is lamb selection day. So that means that they brought in all the lambs and the people that have come from far and wide because this is one of the big three this celebration, the Passover celebration, is one of the biggies. And every year they come from far and wide, from all these other nations. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch who came in Acts? And, like, they come from all over the place. The whole known world comes to Jerusalem on this festival time. And because they're traveling such a long ways, there's no way a little lamb is going to make that travel with them. And so they go to Jerusalem, and this is where they buy the lamb. And the other thing that happens is if you live close by, of course, you can bring your own lamb. But the thing that has to happen is it has to be inspected by the priest. And if the priest is more interested in money, he's not going to like your lamb. He's going to say, oh, you have to buy one of my lambs. And so the people, they were caught. Like, that's the priest. What are they supposed to do? So they had to pay the priest for these lambs that the priest brought in that he's making his profit on. And not only that, they were not allowed to use their foreign currency. They had to use, according to the law of Leviticus, shekels, which was Israel's currency. And so, you know, they, you know in Ethiopia, they don't have shekels. They have Ethiopian, what are they called? Ethiopian coins. And they open up their pouch and... 
They go, nope, can't buy a lamb from me. You got to go over to the money changers there. So they would go over to the money changers table and the money changer would say, well, normally it's one for one, but since it's Passover, it's going to cost you five times as much to get a shekel. And so they were cheating and robbing the people. And they were saying, you know, we need more, more, more. It was all about money. And the other thing is this is all happening in the court of the Gentiles, which is, you know, considered to be sort of the unclean part. Um, No part of the temple is unclean, but the Jews uh, were snobs to the Gentiles, even the Gentile believers who were converted to Judaism. They were snobs to them. And the court of the Gentiles was really used as a place where the Gentiles were allowed to gather and go no further. And so the court of the Gentiles, or the non-Jews, this is where all this was happening. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, to the Gentile nations, and instead they turned it into a profit-making machine. And Jesus takes umbrage with this. And he goes in and he sees all this catastrophe going on around him. It's just like crazy place with animals and you know thousands of people and everybody's milling around and everybody's making noise and Jesus goes to those money changers and he takes the temp the, all of the tables and he turns them upside down and there's animals flying this way and doves that you know for those that couldn't afford a lamb they can buy a dove so the doves are escaping and all of this craziness is going on and Jesus says My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a robber's den, a place where you come back just to regroup before you go out and steal again. And so he says that is not going to happen. And so, you know, everybody's terrified by this. He's come in, the triumphant king, and this is what he does. And so he has everybody just captivated by what he's doing. And so we see really... Um, The first thing that the king does, remember, this is a foreshadowing of the return of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus is going to do when he returns is he is going to judge the nations. And he says that he will in Revelation. So let's turn to Revelation 19. And in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, now he's coming in on a war horse. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it, this is Jesus, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. What is the sword called in the Word? The sword is the Word of God, and it's coming from his mouth that he may smite the nations or rule or judge the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we see this picture 
fulfilling all these prophecies that we've been looking at and all this foreshadowing of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So two times he clears the temple in the scripture. At the beginning of his public ministry and then three years later, we see it again um, at the end of his public ministry. And so um, it's, it's really phrasing and both times he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So that house of prayer, like we think of um, prayer time as being, you know, when we sit down and, and we say our prayers and it's a quiet time and um, that's all that happens. Not that I'm, you know, at all uh, negating the importance of us having those times of prayer. But when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, he's not talking about just when we go off to our quiet corner to pray. He's talking about something much bigger. So let's turn to Isaiah 56, 7. I know, I've got you flipping around. If you've got a Bible app, it's super easy. If you don't, you've got to kind of figure out where all these books are. Okay, so Isaiah 56, verse 7 says, Also, the foreigners um, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord... To be, his, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath. There is no way that's right. Oh, yeah, here it is. Eh, hang in there. I'm going, what? what? What have I done here? Okay, six and uh, down to seven. It holds fast my covenant, mid-sentence, now verse seven, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So it's associated with us bringing our sacrifice to the Lord. Think of Romans 12, where we are told to be a living sacrifice to the Lord, to lay down our lives for the sake of others and to follow Jesus to the cross. And so he says... Um, that my house will be a house of prayer, yet others, verse 8, I will gather to them to those already gathered. And that is a reference to us, the Gentiles, if you're a Gentile. But it's a reference to those that are not of the Jewish nation. Micah 4, um, even better, verses 1 to 2, uh, very clear. And it will come about in the last days. We are in the last days, okay? So the last days is really the preparation for Jesus' return. All the other prophetical events are fulfilled. One is left, and that is return of the Lord Jesus. And we are in the last days. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains or kingdoms. It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it, to this kingdom of God. And many nations will come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so we have this picture of obedient people, obedient to the law of God, to the word of God, who are streaming into the mountain of God, the kingdom of God, Zion, and um, it's really a picture of his millennial reign. So when he talks about the house of prayer, this is what he's talking about, is his place in the millennial reign, that he is victorious, 
that we will come and we will rejoice in who he is. And so um, Solomon's prayer, you know, this is the thing that we have to remember. I, I love this prayer of Solomon. He prays it, um, we have it referenced in a couple of places, but I'm going to read it in Second Chronicles, which is the Chronicles of the Kings, or the History of the Kings, uh, chapter 6. Verses 18 to 21. So Solomon has just um, he's made this magnificent, it's one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. It's been destroyed. But it was made, it was beautiful gold, and it just was magnificent, this temple. Nothing, no building has ever been built like the temple that Solomon built, before or after. It has been the most glorious building that man has ever built. And Solomon is now um, basically anointing it and praying over this temple. And they're about to you know, move from being in the tabernacle into the temple. And so this is what he prays. Uh, it's a long prayer, but just this little bit out of it. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Because remember, the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies, and the, the glory of God rested above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat. And Solomon is saying, even as splendid as this is, is God himself going to dwell among men in this building made by men? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prays before thee, that thine eyes may be open toward this house day and night. That is the grace of God, that he cares about us. Who am I and who are you? In our eyes, we are a little in the grand scope of all the people of the world who ever were and ever will be. We're not much. And yet, God has chosen to dwell within each believer's heart. That is our mighty God. And Solomon is overwhelmed that God would come and dwell within this temple. Well, it is amazing. And the grace of God that he would dwell within this temple. And he says um, that you would put your name there to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray toward this place. And listen to the supplications of thy servant of thy and of thy people Israel. When they pray toward this place, hear thou from thy dwelling place from heaven, hear thou and forgive. So that's the real dwelling place of God is in heaven. So um, he... Uh, in the last bit of Matthew here, in our last section, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant, and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, thou hast prepared praise for thyself. And so um, they're robbing the people. That's what they're doing in the temple. When Jesus comes, he's healing. That's what he does in the temple, is that he heals. And so the contrast between the, the leaders of Israel 
and our great king couldn't be more than what we see here. Uh, he says, you know, even if you won't praise me, it will come out of the mouth of infants, like infants who can't talk. That will come the praise of God. And so 1 Corinthians 1.27, Paul says, God has chosen the foolish and the weak. That's what we are. God has chosen the foolish and the weak, things of the earth, to shame the wise and the strong, or those who think that they are wise and strong. And so the challenge for us is threefold. He has come as king of kings. He is the king of kings. That's a fact. That's not open for dispute. This is what's open for dispute. Is he your king? Is he your king? Everyone will bow the knee to him. Some will bow in absolute honoring him in joy and in praise. And when he returns, there will be some who bow the knee with a shaking fist. They will not want to, but they will be forced into it. And the question is, who is he for you? Is he your king? And each of us have to answer that question. Who would you have been in that crowd if you had been there that day? Which one would have been you? Would you have been one of the ones that was just shouting with joy, Hosanna in the highest? But really what you're thinking is, oh, I'm so glad. We're finally going to get a political party that does what I want as we head into elections on Tuesday. If only Jesus would reign, then everything would be fine. If you just want him as a political um, name, you're missing the point. And you're like a lot of the people who were there that day. Are you one of the people that are a skeptic? Sort of standing at the back. You know, the crowd can follow, but you know, I'm kind of over here. And I've got my arms folded. And I'm not really wanting any of it. Or maybe a curious onlooker. You were swept up when you heard all this crowd and you went to see what was going on. And you're curious. You don't know much about this and you want to know a little bit more. You're not sure exactly where you stand on this. Or maybe one of the ones that are plotting his death because they were there too. The ones that were planning to crucify him a week later. Or, hopefully, one of the faithful followers because his disciples were there as well. And they were the ones now who obediently went and did exactly what Jesus said about getting the donkey. So who would you have been in that crowd? And how do you know that that's who you would have been? How do you know? Only one of those identities was about obedience to Christ, and that was his followers. And that really is the dividing line. Are we a follower of Christ, or are we one of the others of the crowd? There's plenty of choices there, but there's only one that's obedient. And the test is always the acid test of being a faithful follower is how do you practice your obedience to Christ? It's not about intellect. It's not about well-wishing. It's not about, you know, kind thoughts. It's actually about obedience. That's the acid test of whether we are a true follower of Christ or not. And he said, come and follow me, and I am heading to the cross. Huge, huge what he is calling us to do, to lay down our lives for the sake of God, for the sake of others, that we would live a life that is devoted to others. 
who wants to do that? That doesn't come naturally. That only comes through a changed heart that God himself gives to us. And so um, that's the questions for us today. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this wonderful picture that you have given to us of your triumphal entry. And this is, this is such a, a small picture of what it's really going to be like. It's going to be so big, so amazing, so um, overwhelming to us to see you come in all your glory, in all your victory, that you are the one who will reign forever and ever, and your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will not end. And you have called us to reign with you who follow after you. So, Lord, I just pray that you would be with each one of us as we answer these questions that you've challenged us with. Who are we? Who do we follow? Who do we obey? Who do we serve? Lord, let it be you in every way for each one of us. We pray that this might be our confession. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to ask you to stand while I turn to the end of this gospel in Matthew and read to you what the obedience is that he calls us to. Verses 16 to 20. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, this is after Jesus' resurrection, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, the resurrected Christ, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And here it comes. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Thank you. Millerville Community Church is a non-denominational country-style church with a huge heart for God. You'll find a warm, relaxed atmosphere at MCC. We love worship and music here. We are a Christ-centered church with all kinds of opportunities to reach out to the communities, both locally and abroad, and for all ages. Our Sunday service starts at 10.30 a.m. and runs till noonish. Coffee and snacks are served. Children's church and child care are available.